like to welcome you to uh, a very interesting uh, episode of podcast. This is your host, Calm Sword, here again. Um, so something kind of funny happened. We, uh, we, we were supposed to have this kind of filler episode uh, to talk about the railgun, uh, Tau technology, uh, the recent leaks, and everything. And what's so interesting, as, as, as is so often the case with any group uh, of people passionate about a topic, what was supposed to be a 30-minute episode kind of blossomed into a three-and-a-half-hour-long uh, discussion, debate. It went back and forth. Um, I, I had been using a, a program that was that I thought that was going to record my voice a little bit better, uh, as well as record the voice of my fellow uh, community members, and it didn't work out as well as I thought. Looks like we're going to have to, we're going to have to upgrade and create something, something a little bit more uh, professional than just a, a guy with his microphone. So what I'd like to do is, first and foremost, I'd like to apologize to my community members, um, of which uh, many got uh, super heated and uh, asked some pretty incredible questions. Again, I'll try to replicate those here in this re-recording, um, but I would like to invite you uh, for this episode to discuss uh, the origins of Tau technology. Now, what does that mean? Uh, as everybody knows, the, the Tau uh, come from a very rich uh, technological spectrum. Uh, you have the, the Crute rifle, for example, which has been augmented with pulse technology. But then you have the ion cannon, which has been uh, traded with the Demiurg, uh, also known as the Bentusen, uh, who... Who, who kind of gifted it to the Tau, and, and, and it has now been adapted. Um, so really no other race does that. Uh, sure, humanity might steal things, the Mechanicus might, might uh, adopt the, uh, a particularly powerful relic from a conquered species, or, or not, more often than not, an annihilated species. But for the Tau, there's a real integration. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about uh, the let's call it the foundation of Tau tech, which I find really interesting for a science fiction species, uh, in that it is based kind of almost exclusively on this notion of the manipulation of gravity uh, in the form of uh, gravitic tech. Uh, let's call that the gravitic tech tree, uh, and, and then and then move along down the line to railgun technology, which is fairly straightforward. Um, when you think about it, most most uh, most races have have some form of anti-grav technology, whether they've forgotten it, don't know how to replicate it. But uh, it's it's kind of, these are these are kind of like the the basic benchmarks of any sci-fi race. But the Tau take it to an entirely new level. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. Normally, there's a little bit more of a preamble, but I figured since I'm just by myself on this one and I'm referencing. The, uh, the kind of the bad audio um, that I have here, uh, we'll just roll into it. All right, so, so Tau technology begins in a really unusual place in that it, it's, it's, it's birthed from kind of a desperation, right? So the, the, we've talked about it in another episode where the, the Adeptus Mechanicus came to prehistoric Tau took some people, massacred some others, uh, so the artwork depicts, um, took samples back, which would later be referenced when the Tau emerged again, um, 
and and from there we we know that it kind of tumbles into this uh this 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 uh, kind of a renaissance but a dark renaissance where the casts are opposed to each other we know based on uh the designer notes uh created by graham mcneil and and others back in the early 2000s that the tau were supposed to adopt uh, the bow rather than the sword so humanity uh, picks up the sword and that becomes kind of the symbol we're, we're kind of regardless uh, of of the civilization it seems like the a long pole that can stab or cut that becomes a a hallmark weapon while it seems with the tau well it seems we have been told directly by the designers that the tau do the same thing with the bow and so when they pick up the bow they become a distanced uh, hunter as well as warrior uh, civilization and that quickly evolves to uh, and by the way I'm sorry evolution is, 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 is probably a misnomer in this case the Tao haven't seemingly evolved that that quickly we have divergence in the form of the air cast for example um, we uh, who have adapted to living in, in space and, and we know that there's dimorphism with the earth cast, who are typically shorter, the fire cast, which are more muscular, the water cast, which seem to be the closest, we might say, to basic Tau, um, and then, of course, the ethereals, who have uh, some some differences, such as the the bone ridge that is, that rises up in their uh, their nasal cavity. So yes, there there are those divergences, and that that is you know one can argue that that is evolution. But when we come to technology, using the word evolution is not actually uh, it's not it's not really correct. Um, now, I'm I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, but I can I can confidently say that that the evolution of of technology is is something that is uh, is completely different from the biological aspect. So. The Tau, um, remember, they're on a planet with uh, a resource scarcity problem. Um, kind of, based on the pictures, kind of a monocontinent with shallow oceans, uh, not a lot of water. Uh, for me, I always imagine kind of the African savanna, uh, or perhaps Australia. And it's about as hostile to the Tau. Um, as I've stated in other uh, episodes, and, and we've kind of talked about exhaustively, the, uh, the Tau were dealing with uh, some kind of hunter species all the way up to their colonization of the nearby moons of Tau. So uh, just, I mean, just imagine if we were fighting back some kind of saber-toothed tiger in the 70s. I, I often use that analogy. So, so the Tau uh, at this time period kind of make the leap to gunpowder. Um, they have cannons, they probably have rifles. We know that they have cavalry, things like that. So there's uh, there's kind of, uh, there must be some kind of animal husbandry going on. Uh, but the from there, we know almost nothing. Uh, we know that the age of the Monta, uh ends with the arrival of the Ethereals. Shortly thereafter, the, uh, the Ethereals unite the species. Now, uh, I got a little sidetracked, but remember that because of all of these resource shortfalls that are on Tau, um, uh, and the fact that they don't have giant oceans like we do on Earth, uh, separating the different societies and, and countries and, and kind of letting, time, letting uh, countries have time to, uh, to incubate. Um, everything is just happening all at once for the Tau. Um, and, and what does that mean? That means that the, the spike in, in technological innovation is, is going to be there immediately. And if one guy invents a rifle, uh, it's not going to be uh, like it is uh, in, in 
let's call it Terra or Earth's own history, uh, where you have entire continents uh, developing advanced firearms, while another uh, three continents don't, you know, don't have anything of that. And so a couple hundred years down the line, they then engage with one another, and we, we know who ends up winning those fights. So, so the Tau don't really have that, and as a result, that's another reason for the spike in these tech trees. I, I'm a big civilization player, so please forgive me if I if I use that term along a, a lot. But tech tree really, I think it it's a good uh, way of mapping uh, what came first and then what did that lead to. So here we are. Uh, it's uh, it's it, Tau has been unified. The colonization of uh, nearby worlds has begun, and the the Tau continue to develop this, this notion of long-range combat. Now we know after the Manta uh, that basically the notion of Tau killing each other uh, becomes archaic, um, as much as the notion of, um, let's say, the, you know, the, the, the concept of, uh, of, of human beings uh, ha performing incest. Of course, I don't don't want it to turn into that conversation, but every society uh, regards that as a, as a bad thing. And then, of course, there's the biological problems with having that. So there's, there's no, with, with very few exceptions in, in typically, uh, you know, the upper tiers of aristocracy, this notion of trying to preserve bloodlines and everything. But by and large, everybody kind of agrees, you know, stay away from that. The Tao kind of have a similar reaction in that the notion of killing another Tao uh, becomes becomes the um, uh, kind of the uh, exemplification of a, a massive step backward to this age before the ethereals, and that's something that I always really like to remind people that the that the Tao don't like not even the far side enclaves in the examples that we have with with that there there is no there is no civil war happening you know uh, there's one instance where where uh, ships trade uh, missile shots, and we un we know almost nothing about that, and and it's 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 very much an outlier. Um, in that, and maybe we'll get more with the new codex. Anyway, so so what does that mean? That means that weaponry kind of kind of probably stagnates because there's nobody really uh, to fight in an aggressive war uh, other than these these predators that we've talked about, and these predators. Um, uh, you know, enforce the early firecasts notion of keeping your enemy with you know within rifle shot, um, staying away from close combat. Otherwise, you know, we would we would have seen some kind of developments of it, and that leads eventually to um, and so so let's say the technology kind of kind of hits the first ceiling, right? Like, okay, we have to design weapons that kill these predators, but we don't have to design weapons for anybody that's going to shoot back at us, really. Um, until the Tau encounter their first alien race, which leads to the first alien war, uh, and that is the Nikasar. Now, the Nikasar have been described very wildly. Uh, th there are descriptions of them having avian skulls with sightless eyes, but then there are also uh, descriptions that they are bears, ursine, some kind of multi-limbed, uh, you know, furry polar bear thing. Um, I, I think that what makes them su supremely alien is imagine if it's both a giant bear with a bird head. Sure, 
um, and they are incredibly telepathic. And now when I when I say that they're tele uh, incredibly telepathic, I mean like the leader of one of these Nikasar Dows. These are these uh, large escort ships that have uh, dozens of families living on board them. They don't have faster than light travel, but they, they basically float through space uh, and they have just this natural uh, desire to explore um, and see the universe, you know, um, for the record, by the way, the Nikasar are uh, all over the Eastern Fringe. Uh, not all of them are focused in uh, the Tau systems. So, so this leads to the first war, uh, and it's a shooting war. And I would imagine that these these uh, these Nikasar, having survived in the universe of Warhammer Forty Thousand, they probably have guns. And this life fleet, as it's called, engages with the Tau. Um, perhaps using these telepathic abilities, and the tower kind of forced to develop ship-to-ship uh, uh, -ship combat tactics, which they do, and the aircast is immensely successful. Uh, they subdue the Nikasar threat. Again, we don't know too much about it, but the Nikasar willingly join, uh, at least this life fleet joins the Tau. Um, and now the trade is really interesting, see, because one of these, uh, one of the wonders of, of the Tau their, the history of their technology is that they they trade and discover as much as they innovate, and in the case of their so, when they were populating their solar system, they actually find a warp drive uh, crashed on their largest moon moon called Louvral. Now this is uh, if you're if you're now suddenly grabbing your codex and trying to figure it out and you know <laughs> it distinctly says that the Tau don't have warp travel. Well. Within the community, within the Tau community, especially with many of those uh, that I've spoken to, there's a little bit of engineering that you have to do with this lore. Because, quite frankly, uh, a, a, a race in Warhammer 40,000 that does not have faster-than-light technology just couldn't function. There, there's no... Even if you were going a fraction of the speed, or a fraction to the speed of light, uh, let's say 99% the speed of light, it would, it would still take you five years to get to the nearest star. And of course, there's exponential differences in, in as you go to you know, even further distances, and it, it just gets complicated and way too complicated for this, uh, the, the purposes of this discussion. So, so the idea that we basically have to embrace as we go forward with this conversation is that the Tau have to retain their uh, first codex, the Battlefleet Gothic uh, rulebook, um, uh, a lot of the early novels. We have to just adopt that the Tau have a slower form of warp travel because when they found this device on Lubral, uh, they backwards engineered it and even though they did not have the biological element, which is required in all forms of warp travel, uh, and that is some form of psyker, uh, gestalt consciousness, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, because the Tau don't have any psychers, they they do everything with the, the technological uh, uh, foundation, which is, um, which is gravitic technology. So from those early gunpowder era, that, that early gunpowder era, at some point the Tau developed these these gravitic sails. Now a gravitic sail is very much uh, perhaps the Eldar are a good reference. You know, much like how the the Eldar use these these sails to catch solar winds and and create these beautiful you know these elegant craft which can turn on a dime um, and have it's basically super solar. 
the the tau generate the same thing but with gravitic technology and now they use and I'm sorry so what is gravitic technology basically it's a it's a it's a term to say uh, the ability to conform and manipulate gravi uh, gra gravity fields. Um, they use this seemingly to remove themselves from their planet. Um, uh, so rather than, uh, they might have had rocket ships at some point, but as they're expanding into their own solar system, so this would be, uh, this would be relatively early uh, in, in the first sphere, uh, what they do, actually, this would be before the official launch of the, of the first sphere, um, uh, which is when town is, uh, the, the sept is actually first, first uh, detected. But in these very, very early periods, gravitic technology effectively allows the Tau to construct ships, and then they use a kind of a giant field in front of, projected in front of their ships, which the craft is then kind of falling toward, if that makes sense. So um, very briefly, if you take your two hands, uh, make your left hand kind of a cone or an umbrella, and then your right hand uh, a flat blade going into your uh, your left hand's palm, that's basically what a, how a gravitic field is described. And, and the ship is pulled or falls toward that field. Uh, it's very cool, very sci-fi, very neat. Um, but it, what it also ends up doing is, is that it allows them to use these things called spine guns, uh, which are these uh, very simple, very archaic kind of rail gun, which runs from one end of the ship to the other and uh, allows the Tau to fire uh, guided, basically guided projectiles. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's described as a missile, at other times it's described as a sabot, very similar to a hammerhead railgun. Um, and, and they use this against the Nikasar. So, so this, this, uh, this technology is then adapted to the warp drive that they find. And what they realized what they can do is, is that if they, on their largest ships, and that would be like a Galith-class colony ship, um, which is kind of like their battleship, they they can force a kind of a, a skip right um uh like a, imagine a stone skipping across the water uh they can create uh, these larger ships can create such a powerful field that they actually burrow through the dimensional barriers between real space and the warp and force the ship to to kind of be in a middle ground between the two and these skips even though it takes an immense amount of power uh, and, and the distances are not as far as the human counterparts, and in fact are, are in general slower. Um, it allows the Tau kind of uh, the closest thing that you can get to, to safe travel in Warhammer 40,000. And coupled with the fact that they then start building these way stations, which, which imagine if you're in, uh, imagine if you're in a, a, any kind of uh, Stel, you know, Stellaris is a good example, or, or really just any kind of any sci-fi universe. You have these jump points um, where uh, where the tower then they kind of frequent. So they know that they're going to come out at this end, so they'll build a way station, and they kind of keep leapfrogging to other star systems. And this this will eventually create a huge network. But again, this is a conversation about uh, technology, and I don't want to I don't want to get too off board. But this is this eventually becomes the 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 large founding principle of Tau technology. And now, they 
basically what they do is is that they start to they start to parlay this up. The Nikasar, for example, are upgraded uh, in order to have uh, better, uh, perhaps better. Uh, universally, it's called weapons batteries in the game, but um, but this in the same manner that they'll eventually upgrade Krut tech, the Nikasar weapons batteries are improved. We don't really know what those are. They look like Imperial those Imperial box uh, uh, weapons batteries. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I could, I could guess that those are kind of like, perhaps they're miniature railguns, something like that. Not really important for the purposes of this discussion, but, but okay. So, so now that we have this base, right, let's move into what, what got my community, uh, so, uh, so interested in what's going on right now. Um, a couple weeks ago, there was a, a leak, uh, a Tau Codex leak, and, and now we're seeing all kinds of weapons coming out and, and things like that. And it's it's a very interesting time to be a, a Tau uh, a Tau player. Um, there's a lot of salt, of course, from the the rest of the Warhammer 40k player community, but there's always going to be a little bit of that when it comes to Tau. Um, and and that's one of the reasons why uh, I think that this podcast and our community has become so important because uh, there's so much education that can happen uh, when we just talk to each other. Um, I know that. I know that uh, a lot of people don't might might make fun of Tau players for a variety of different reasons, but you know I, I, that's one of the reasons why we started this podcast is to really kind of uh, give you as much information as possible with with the you know with a sousson of uh, of my opinions. You know I can't help it sometimes they come through um, and my suppositions uh, and and the and the hope that that basically you can take the time that we have together right here um, and carry that into you with the rest of the community. The, the best thing that you can do is just not be contentious. You know, like, people, haters gonna hate. Because the Hammerhead Railgun is so awesome. Now, I started off uh, in Warhammer 40,000 um, playing as Dark Angels originally. And uh, Dark Angels, super cool. Uh, they were very different back then. Uh, they weren't so obsessed with just chasing after the Fallen. Uh, in fact, they were they they kind of held a lot of the 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 place where where blood angels kind of have have become you know very they they uh, kind of tragic figures um, the best of the best you know things like that and uh, obviously that's changed now but obviously and then when the Tau came out you know I I jumped ship and when I did back in third edition the hammerhead railgun tank was a horror. It was the only strength 10 weapon. And, it, and back then the rule for them was uh, AP minus one, which would be, uh, uh, you know, which basically is like no saves, no saves of, except for invulnerable saves. And it, uh, it then had also a submunition blast, which back then we had these cutout pieces of plastic, which you'd lay on top. It's, it's so much fun. Very, a very visceral game, which, which uh, maybe it took a little bit longer than, than current games now, but I, you know, it holds a, third edition holds a special place in my heart. But lore-wise, let's talk about it, right? So the railgun is probably the, 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 the main, because, because it is derived from that same gravitic tree, you know, manipulating magnetic fields uh, could be could be in the same family of manipulating gravitic fields, and there's probably uh, a similar power source and a similar uh, and a similar uh, let's call it an ideology that is approached with the hammerhead railgun uh, cannon. Um, that cannon uh, is very similar then to the spine gun, which can be seen on the uh, on the hero class cruiser. 
for the cor- for the for the uh, the Corvatra, the the aircast fleet, and and it it it. it kind of follows a pretty basic principle of alternating currents on a left and right rail which then pushes forward uh, a, a sabot. Now these sabots can just be a dart um, and you can actually see the magazine on the top of the rail uh, the rail ca- uh, the rail gun on a hammerhead. Um, I don't know what to call it a rail cannon or a rail gun. I'll, I'll alternate between the two. But uh, you can you can actually see the the the, the magazine, and so it fires uh, a dart, and that dart hits with such incredible force that it effect- effectively liquefies everything inside of a hard target. Now, be that uh, a space marine, uh, which in this case it completely destroys the gene seed, being you know being devastating against that particular troop type, or an imperial battle tank. Um, and it leaves it leaves the tank relatively uh, relatively undamaged. You know the crew though um, basically uh, turns into uh, a biological milkshake, uh, which then uh, very often goes out an exit wound, um, and it's horrible. <laughs> now, the railgun uh, has a, a has a modulating speed. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be that focused single shot. It has kind of like a uh, I guess what could best be described as kind of a uh, like a shotgun version or or that blast that I was talking about. And while the, this and it, it's called a submunition blast. And while we don't know too much about what goes into that, because we're not it, it doesn't it doesn't say that it's a it's a shell that then explodes, um, at least not in the, the the books that I've read. It seems like it's more like the, it's a it's a it's either it's either a dialed up. Or, or, or somehow a, a, a dialed down shot, which then perhaps the shock wave is is causing that blast, and it just tears infantry uh, infantry apart. Um, you know, uh, less armored infantry specifically. So, so this this uh, this is just a, a, when the Tau meet their first true enemy as they start trying to colonize Taun. The, the closest major star system beyond Tau, and, and then, of course, what will be the first uh, sept um, uh, uh, after Tau itself. Um, when they engage the orcs, um, which are which are resisting uh, the, the aircast fleet, these weapons, as well as ordnance, will provide a, a, a ridiculous uh, uh, edge over, over the orcs. Um, and these early wars are really are one. Uh, I mean, we don't know very much about the first sphere, admittedly, but but these these early wars are clearly uh, uh, conclude in the way that we know, which is that which is that the Tau win. They push these orc pirate fleets away from uh, away from the 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 core of what will later be turned uh, called called the first sphere. Um, and and again, these you know the the technology that's going to that's going to leapfrog here is actually going to be crisis suits, and that makes sense. Um, you know we have the T series and the and the, effectively we have the fossil fuel series of crisis suits um, that sound very very uh, not very effective. Um, and then there's of course an atomic version that gets created and that actually poisons the pilots, so that's very quickly uh, shelved. But um, 
and eventually we they, they'll they'll come to the current power. You know, we don't know too much about the power generation of the of the crisis suit. My assumption is is that it's plasma in nature, um, or perhaps even uh, even that it is it it it. it it itself is creating a kind of small gravitic field for the flyer. We do know that uh, crisis suits are fully air uh, can, can be fully airborne. They have an airborne quality to them, and then once they get to engagement range, then they start becoming uh, kind of a uh, a jump pack troop where they 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 keep hopping everywhere. Um, but we do do know that the crisis suits are capable of prolonged flight. Um, anyway, uh, that. But that is what gets, uh, that's what gets uh, pushed forward. You know, that is, that is the new tech tree uh, where, where the gravitic tech tree kind of stops and it will continue, um, uh, continue advancing, but not until like a couple thousand years later. Um, what, really, what really ends up getting uh, all of the attention by Earth and, and Watercast scientists, and remember, they are both scientists, uh, common misconception, um, even even from some of the official sources, but but like we have uh, we have at least three stories um, that depict that depict a water cast uh, involvement in the the testing and development of weapons uh, alongside the Earth cast. Um, we'll get to that in just a sec, though. Um, but now what you have is the evolution of plasma technology. And that's the improvements on that, um, you know, again, we don't, quite frankly, we don't know when the shift happened, but that from gunpowder, uh, in terms of like regular rifle troops, for example, they then adopt the pulse rifle and pulse weapons in general, which interestingly enough, is a derivative again of gravitic tech, or at least I'll make this supposition that it is because plasma, um, especially the way that I've come to know the pulse rifle and pulse weapons in general, uh, involves creating a localized field um, that surrounds uh, surrounds a pellet. Um, remember that the uh, the pulse rifle is actually uh, has an ammunition quality to it. Uh, you can see it uh, on the model if you look at it. Uh, the stock has this. Uh, it looks like a magazine, but it uh, from 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 the community's perspective, at least until we until we get a uh, until we get a, an actual like anatomical breakdown. Um, that is a battery source. You can actually see where it slides in, and those two battery sources actually uh, originate on the backpack, and the Fire Warrior can switch those out. Meanwhile, the there's an additional magazine. It's kind of a spherical uh, stud um, right in front of the ha uh, the hand that's that's holding the trick uh, that, that that's on the trigger. Um, that's actually, uh, from what we can tell, is is an additional magazine, and that actually fires pellets, and it probably has hundreds if not thousands of shots inside of it because the pellets can be relatively small but that pellet goes into the gun and if as you can see it has two rails um, that creates an induction field which then produces the the pulse right um, what's interesting uh, and and this is purely hypothetical at this point but it would seem and and based on the early descriptions of the of the pulse rifle itself you can see that in the in the release of the the tau themselves in the white dwarf uh, I believe it's two six two. I'll, I'll get I'll get the right uh, right one and, and put it in the link below. But um, but if you see, uh, it, it's probably alternating, and then rapid fire is uh, is both barrels going simultaneously. But uh, that's probably to make sure that it doesn't overheat. And of course, we know that the the kind of telltale sphere bisected sphere that's on almost all 
Tau technology, uh, that is the internal gyroscope uh, to keep the weapon near recoilless, but in the case of recoil to make uh, make the hand steadier um, and make and make tracking targets easier. Anyway, that's kind of a side note. Um, the but but plasma technology, so that's the plasma rifle. Uh, that's that's basically all pulse weapons. So that's the carbine, burst cannons, uh, rifles. Um, all of these all of these weapons are a branch off from that gravitic uh, that original gravitic found, uh, foundation. And uh, in the in the timelines that we see in the codexes, all of these weapons start start kind of getting added on uh, uh, and and improved upon all all manner of uh, of the fire cast forces. Um, probably most interestingly, and I'll just say it briefly because they're my favorite troop type. But the breachers, um, the breachers, very interesting. Uh, they're the newest troop type. Um, they're only a couple years old. But as what happens often uh, from official sources, um, you know, they've been around forever. Don't worry about it. Like, yes, they're they're the new hotness, but they've actually been around, you know, for hundreds of years. Uh, you can see the same kind of descriptions with Space Marine Centurions. Like, one day they we, we didn't have them, and now they oh uh, we yeah we found those a couple like a thousand years ago. Yeah, they just it's been t it just took a while for them to get to the front line. I really like it when they do stuff like that. Uh, probably rather than the Primaris, just like they've been building an army for 10,000 years and, and, you know, whiz, bang, poof. But again, just personal opinions. But with the, with the breachers, it, it's so casually mentioned that they were developed uh, in early confrontations uh, with, with humanity. Now they don't give a date. They don't, they don't put a specific place on them, but this would have been the, the largest step forward for pulse weapons uh, since the first sphere. Uh, the development of the pulse blaster, which is effectively a pulse shotgun, um, involves the, the specific clearing out of hard points, which is something that the Tau never really had to deal with. Now keep in mind for, for the thousands of years um, uh, of active conflict after, uh, after the engagement with the Nikasar, all the way up to just before the Damocles Gulf Crusade, the tower mostly uh, kicking doors in and you know taking names, they they have they effectively neutralize the orcs um, in the region. Um, that uh, in the Farsight episode, uh, if you remember, that will drastically change though when Farsight decides to kick the hornet's nest. But up until that point, the orcs were basically under control in terms of uh, threat level. Um, but then the Tau also had to fight off uh, a reek migration migration um they've also fought the, fought the bargesi um the, note the hyper violent bargesi um they they rid themselves in the western vale of uh, of the arakan an extremely violent uh, race that would plant their babies inside of you um and and of course they're they're uh, throughout their timeline they're dealing with what they think is a single race which is the the uh, the eldar um turns out of course they come into contact with exodites Craftworld Eldar as well, uh, and uh, and Dark Eldar, um, but but they they it's when they come into contact with the Imperium that they have to start making these close, basically like danger close weapons. Um, that will begin with the pulse carb, uh, excuse me, the pulse blaster, and and it will then reach its its ultimate uh, expression 
in the form of the Pulse Driver Cannon and uh, the Pulse Arc Cannon. So, and 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 just for the record, um, for anybody that is minding uh, the leaks and rumors, uh, these things can basically, you know, one shot uh, a mini Titan or a Knight. So, uh, but from but, but from that much closer range. Um, which I'd like to just, you know, as because we're talking about technology and the evolution of Tau technology, you know, when people say that they want, you know, let's get a close combat drone, let's get a let's get a close combat uh, battle suit. Close combat for the Tau are the development of these weapons. You know, there's uh, it'll probably go away, but there's a stratagem that allows uh, the breachers, for example, to fire in close combat with their with their with their pulse blasters at point blank, you know, basically at point blank range. Um, that level of training, um, that lo- those those weapons that they that they develop, uh, such as those on the storm surge, things that are meant to be uh, basically uh, within arm's length, weapons that comparatively, right? Um, that is the Tau response to close combat. And it's the same thing if you think about it from, from uh, a more uh, classic human military perspective uh, in that, you know, during World War II, for example, or, or heck, you know, we can go to the age of the sail, when an enemy ship is drawing close or, or when a cavalry charge is about to break across the battlefield, um, filling a cannon up with coins and keys and scrap metal and everything and, and dirt sometimes uh, and firing that in a, in a kind of almost like a flamethrower uh, that is the response to to close combat because ultimately you know you don't uh, short of the immortal knights stalking the battlefields uh, of, of, of 40,000 um, you know you, pro- you probably are never going to be uh, unless you have space marines you're probably never going to be able to match space marines in close combat they're first of all they love it um, and second of all, I mean, they are knights, you know, I mean, they always have, there's a different flavor uh, for every chapter, uh, but ultimately they all really like getting stuck in. And I mean, not even regular, uh, regular, let's just call them regular mortals, generally speaking, do not want to engage at that level. So just remember that this is the, the pulse blaster, you know, the arc cannon, these are... The, this is in response to the fact that you've got a guy running across the battlefield with a chainsaw in his hand, uh, praying to some uh, crippled guy on a planet that he's he's never even seen. So, lots of judgment in that statement. Uh, please don't take offense if you are a follower of the God Emperor. Uh, may he protect us all in our time of need. So, so the Tao... So, so that's that's a branch, right? That's another branch, but it's stemming from the same unit, this foundation of gravitic technology, plasma technology, uh, pulse technology. <clears throat> um, I would even argue that probably missile technology is somehow in there. You know, um, it's 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 probably you know larger missiles have their own power generations, but but who knows? Uh, in the descriptions of a seeker missile. I've never once heard that there's a flame coming out the back. And if you look at the the original Seeker, uh, Seeker model, um, I'm not too sure about the the newer ones, but the original Seeker model, it doesn't look like a jet turbine. And Games Workshop modelers love to show us jet turbines. I mean, there's just they're they're everywhere. You know, uh, look at a DACA jet um, or or look at uh, an assault uh, space marine. You know, the, the nozzles nozzles for days. Um, the Seeker missile as it's described in its first unveiling 
uh, written by Graham McNeil. I think it's I think it is called I believe it's called Shape of the Hunt, but it's just an excerpt. It's 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 one page, and it depicts a, a Tau Pathfinder team engaged with uh, Dark Eldar raiders, and it's from half of it is from the Dark Eldar's perspective, and they see a, a brace of Seeker missiles coming at them, and they're you know kind of crawling all over the place and and dodging uh, point defense fire and things like that, and that it sounds more like something that is exceptionally maneuverable, and I think that that means that it's probably not using you know, uh, thrust so much as uh, kind of, uh, let's call it uh, anti-grav tech. So anyway, um, again, the Tau kind of take the notion of uh, gravity and the manipulation of gravity to their advantage. Just look at look at the Manta. You know, it's the largest, uh, it's the largest aircraft, um, I believe, in the universe setting. It It's a trans, it, it goes from atmosphere to space and back. Uh, it's a, it's a, it can carry an entire cadre, um, and there's no way that that thing is is uh, exclusively aerodynamic. It is existing on a pocket of uh, of a gravity well, um, much like uh, you know if we go to Star Trek or Star Wars where that stuff is more commonplace. But nobody does that, you know. N nobody else does that um, to the scale that the Tau have. So this. So, so that's two branches, and, and I guess a minor branch if you want to think about the, the warp, if you want to think warp drive is, is, is a deviance from the, from the foundation. But, but going further, you know, now we hit, on the timeline, we hit the Damocles Gulf Crusade, also called the Lithesh War, um, because the Tau uh, Commonwealth actually lies mostly within the Lithesh sector, which is one of the easternmost sectors in the galaxy. You can check it out on a map. Um, but when the Tau engage humanity, they really, really have to evolve technologically. Um, there is, there has never been anything like a Titan in, in, in Tau military, uh, engagements. Remember that, that the, the orc engagements are predominantly in space, which is probably why the Tau were successful. Um, when they've had to engage orcs on a planet, they're mostly kind of infestations. Uh, for example, the orcs that uh, attempted to destroy the Krut Empire um, several hundred years earlier. Um, the Tau, you know, so the Tau don't really face Gargants um, until really, I mean, historically until after uh, the Damocles Gulf Crusade. So, but Titans are a step above a Gargant, right? Like they're mobile. Um, they're, they're very distinctly uh, uh, an, an elite kind of shock troop that the, that the Imperium uses uh, to, to kind of devastating effect. Um, they, the, the Tower Force to then contend with Space Marines for the first time. The first contact battles with Space Marines are devastating. You know, the entire colonized region beyond the Tau holdings. Remember, the Tower in a stellar cluster that's kind of an island, and it's surrounded by... Uh, something called the Damocles Gulf, but also the Pertus Rift and the Solai Rift. And these regions are, are extremely difficult to navigate through. And so, you know, when you want to think like, how could the Tau uh, have have gone so long without being just snuffed out by any of the races in the galaxy, it's because they're mostly isolated. Um, you know, think of uh, think of England or, or think of Japan. It, it's really important to sometimes have a big body of water separating you. Uh, from from all the madness everywhere else, so 
So, so the Damocles War breaks out, and the Tau learn a lot, but the Imperium learns a lot too. And to to kind of exclusively talk about uh, technology, um, what the Imperium realizes is the Tau have a lot of weapons that specifically kind of really take the really take the spice out of space marines. Um, First and foremost, you you have that you have further gravitic technology. Remember, we talked about uh, the railgun, for example. Um, that liquefies uh, a body and destroys gene seed. If you destroy enough gene seed, you can actually kill a chapter because they're not able to uh, recover their losses. Gene seed is ex it's the only thing of value for uh, really for a space marine chapter universally. Um, uh, and then, and then you have uh, the neutron blasters of the of the Vespin. Now, these things, uh, first of all, they have a it's an Earthcast designed housing for uh, for a gemstone that has uh, extremely volatile radiation inside of it. This is uh, this was the the weapon of choice by the uh, pre uh, uh, pre unification. Uh, of, of Vespid culture uh, into the into the Commonwealth, um, the the beams of radiation are modulated uniquely by Vespid uh, wings as they fly, um, and and these these weapons irradiate a body and thus kill Gene Steed again. So again, you have you have these two different things that the Tau ca kind of casually have. Vespid are not a unique elite troop; they're 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 extremely common. Um, they are they are held in the highest esteem, and they are used with the firecast in conjunction with uh, with their crisis suits. So um, so that you know you're when when you go against the Tau, you're going to be facing a lot of railguns, and you're going to be facing a lot of uh, probably a lot of neutron blasters, except at least in the lore. You know, maybe not on the tabletop. Who knows? So so the Imperium really has to has to contend with that fact. Um, that their elite, you know, the elite of the elite fighting forces uh, could effectively uh, be exterminated. Uh, they could, they, if if a if a war goes on long enough and the Tau really make it their business, you know, you could make a Space Marine chapter extinct, which of course ends up happening uh, during the Damocles Gulf Crusade in the form of uh, the Scar Lord Space Marine chapter, which I don't believe has recovered. I've never heard of them again. Um, uh, they lost their chapter master. Uh, it seems like they lost about eight companies. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot, um, and they don't appear uh, any, at least anywhere that I've seen uh, since. So, so again, as and and by the way, I just have to mention every now and again I just take a pause because uh, <laughs> I just have to catch my breath or take a drink of water. So that's what those pauses are. Uh, if I was better at making podcasts, you wouldn't even notice. But uh, just a guy with a microphone. So, so where were we? So. So after the Damocles Gulf, first and foremost, the air cast realizes that they need to actually make warships. And this is the first time that that's been, that's, that's been a priority. Yes, the Corvatra before has, uh, has a colony uh, defense uh, network uh, in terms of like these picket ships that, are, that piggyback on the, on the larger ships as they make their translations through the warp. Um, and uh, Tau escorts are, are, are mostly just gunships. Um, because they they're not able to uh, have enough power supply for both, uh, the the aircast basically says to the earthcast, we need a we need a better gun, 
And so in the 200 years between the Damocles Gulf Crusade and the modern era of Warhammer 40,000, which is the year, you know, it's roughly 41, you know, 99999, endless nines, because we're never going to break into 42, so the rumor goes. Um, but for those 200 years, the Tau spent an enormous amount of time of research and development. And what that, what that comes uh, with is sleeker ships. You know, you get the custodian class fleet carrier, which has an enormous amount of ordnance and fighter craft aboard it. Uh, and, and then you get the much sleeker, uh, the much sleeker escort classes, which, which, uh, which have typically an, uh, typically an ion weapon aspect to them. And that's where I want to kind of end this part because we've been going for almost an hour um, and I do uh, want to introduce other chapters so the next episode we'll, we'll actually have uh, we'll ha ha we will keep going with Tau technology and you'll hear from uh, the, the audio that I could salvage from the, from the original uh, discussion but ion technology ion technology becomes one of the necessities of the modern, 40, uh, the modern Tau uh, war machine and, and ion technology is really interesting because it, com it does not originate at all with the Tau. Um, nor, nor is it a relic that they find. It's not, it's not uh, as, in, as in with the, the, the warp drive. They discover the ion uh, tech by their negotiations with the Demiurg. Now the Demiurg, uh, another really fascinating species. Uh, for a little while there, they they were going to be the squats, uh, the, you know, squat survivors that had uh, that had outlasted uh, their previous kin. Um, but that's that's since been changed, um, and they they especially since we have squats coming back in Necromunda. The so the Demiurg are uh, also called Bentusin, which uh, means wise or learned ones in the official lexicon. Um, the the Demiurg are kind of on the run. First, they're they're a mining species. Uh, we we don't actually have any uh, any reliable descriptions of them. They stay on board their vessels. They make extensive use of drone technologies. Interesting, right? Very much like the Tau. Um, which they can then configure. If you if you play Battlefleet Gothic, uh, the the PC game, you can see that they can have different configurations for their drones, which is like assault drone, fighter drone, bomber drone, and so forth. They also have devastating mining lasers, um, uh, but but really the 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 main weapon that they have is ion technology, and ion technology is best described as uh, as effectively uh, the imperial version of lance technology. Um, except much smaller. So Lance technology is, uh, you know, a giant building that's stuck onto a, a ship that's, um, you know, three miles long, and this building fires a huge, uh, a huge laser beam, um, which can, <laughs> can and has been used to cut through planet crust, uh, as well as well as take ships apart. These are devastating weapons. But the Demiurg have it, and they're they're much smaller. Um, they're 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 presumably they're used for for mining. Um, and when the Tau encounter the Demiurg, they say that they, first of all, they 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 say that they're not with you know they're they're not like humanity. Um, the Demiurg are kind of a little bit on the run. Uh, this would be the Suryatok uh, Brotherhood. The, the their fleets are called Brotherhoods. Um, 
later on another another faction of them called the Therm Brotherhood will 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 kind of uh, involve you know be in Tau space. They do not join the Tau, and that's that's something really important. At least we don't have any mention of it. Uh, they are a trading partner. So unlike the Crute, which are full members, or the Vespid, uh, and then later, of course, uh, a lot of Guevesa communities, uh, uh, the uh, the Nagi, the the Demiurge are just are, are basically just uh, to tra- basically in trade of having safe harbor, a place to uh, a place to hide or lick their wounds, or at least a place that they don't have to worry about somebody shooting them all the time. The Demiurge trade with the Tau and give them ion technology. And this ion technology becomes prolific, especially after the the, the Damocles Gulf Crusade. Um, much like railgun, so, so railgun technology after the same event uh, will go through a miniaturizing process. So instead of it just being uh, on a broadside or or a tank, uh, they, they will actually, uh, the earth and water cast will develop a, uh, a rifle variant um, and that rifle variant goes through several trials. Initially, it's a little bit costly to the the user. Um, the Pathfinder that is using the rail rifle uh, has has a, a feed, has a potential feedback problem, which uh, was a description given to how early rail guns or excuse me, early rail rifles. Uh, if you rolled a one, it actually overheated very much like a plasma weapon. But in later iterations, they solved that problem. Ion technology, on the other hand, um, never, kind of never gives up on being a volatile weapon. It can be seen on the Barracuda. It's one of its main weapons. Uh, it's also a, t- a tiger shark weapon. The Manta has six of them. The Hammerhead can have one. Uh, we've never seen it uh, on on uh, crisis suits, and I believe that's likely that's likely because they don't have a power system that can that can. They can uh, basically afford that weapon, but I also think it's because the crisis team can't can't. They're already going to be in the thick of the fighting. They can't have a weapon that might kill them as well. And I, I think that's an interesting thing, and perhaps something to talk about later. You know how the firecast treats the very elite. But the ion cannon uh, is miniaturized uh, during this time period and made into a rifle that the pathfinders then use um, to kind of. Uh, Kind of a successful. I, I would say uh, again, the 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 rifle version can overheat, um, and of course, it's then also given to the larger suits, which are developed um, toward the uh, toward the beginning of the third sphere expansion. Um, they they both have ion technology as well. That's where we have the 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 kind of uh, the innovative period for the Tau, the 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 introduction of ion weapon in the uh, ion weapons in uh, the uh, just the inventory uh, of a lot of these new elite units, and that's because uh, again, if you think about it, like the tower now going up against hard targets, and uh, and they need to have they need to pack um, that extra devastating punch. Um, in order to in order to compete, quite frankly, it could, now yes uh, to the cynics, <laughs> uh, to the cynics, yes of course it could also be because big mechs. Uh, a lot of people find big mechs uh, being cool. Uh, no judgment, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, a lot of people like riptides, um, and I and probably a lot of people are going to like storm surges. But um, but at least from a lore perspective, uh, again you look at the the fact that the Tau in the third sphere will have to start facing entire chapters worth 
of space marines, um, for example, during the Zeist campaign, in the form of Cato Sicarius's uh, counterattack, uh, he he managed to put together a fighting force of over a thousand space marines from various different chapters. That and he's Cato Sicarius, um, but but the town now have to face things like this, and they never have before, um, and resulting in the need for weapons like this. Now, in the next uh, the next mini chapter of this extremely long episode, and thank you so much for, for bearing with me, um, we are going to talk about uh, Tau super weapons, but then we'll also talk about uh, Tau, let's call it uh, Tau uh, benign technologies. Uh, for example, uh, how uh, Tau cybernetics um, and how Tau uh, might treat their, you know, the longevity uh, uh, that they, uh, their, their lifespans, you know, they, they, they only live... Uh, between you know 60 and 70 years uh, what you know what do they do How, why don't they prolong their lives and uh, I'm very excited uh, because you'll be able to hear from some of the, uh, the other members uh, I'll, I'll apologize in advance and that my voice will sound a little bit more muffled so I'll try to fix it where uh, where I can but thank you so much for coming to this first part uh, there will likely be f <laughs> well I have five parts here but I'm hoping to whittle it down to three parts um, and then, uh, and then we'll see where this goes. But um, they'll all have the same title in front: Tau Technology, where it's going, and you. Thank you so much for joining me uh, for this for this episode. It is always a pleasure. Uh, I know I, I keep saying it, but please um, come visit us, talk with us. Uh, the Discord link uh, is in the description below. Uh, we uh, we are Tau Forty Thousand. I'm very happy to say I've been told to just call it that rather than 40.000, which is kind of a, a, a tongue twister. Um, is it a tongue twister? I don't know. It's a difficult thing to say. Um, but thank you again. <laughs> uh, I, as ever, uh, I am Calm Sword. It's been a pleasure, and as always, good hunting.